This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, everyone. This is Charlie Walk. We're talking about music. We're talking about the biggest stars in the world that I got to work with. Ariana Grande, John Mayer, The Weeknd, Post Malone, all here coming up next on Hollywood Raw. All right, guys, this episode is sponsored by Herd App Marketings. Now, you've heard us talk about the Herd App Media team and all the reasons we chose to work with them and how far the Hollywood Raw podcast has come in the last few months with much more in the pipeline that we're very excited about. But Herd App Media is only one part of the Herd App organization. Let us say one of the reasons we chose Herd App, it was their reputation as one of the premier search engine optimization agencies out there. Search optimization, uh, for those of you who don't know, is the practice of optimizing your uh, website, podcast, YouTube views, or anything else to be found that's highest possible in the Google search results. Herd App Marketing serves the marketing needs of companies of all sizes, from mom and pop shops to S&P 500 corporations. They work with nearly 3,000 business locations in 43 states, and this was the tipping point in the decision for the Hollywood Raw. So we knew that growing Hollywood Raw meant partnering with a media company that also had a full marketing arm, and that's what Herd App Marketing brings to the table. So Herd App Marketing is not just SEO. They are a full-service marketing agency with literally every service under one roof. There is nothing outsourced to partners like a lot of the other big agencies do, and we mean everything, social media marketing, web design, content marketing, video production, branding, creative, SEO, SEM, local SEO, all the SC whatevers, they have the team in-house to meet your needs and ours. Yeah, that's why you see our TikTok blowing up. Uh, We are getting ready to launch a whole new website, and they are the power behind the new stories that we found on our website. They literally do it all for us, and they can do the same for you. So if you have a company that needs more customers or know somebody who needs new customers, you know by now that the internet is where you're going to find them, and Herd App Marketing is the company that will get you found more often than your competition online at herdatmarketing.com. That's H U R R D A T marketing.com or give them a call at 877-662-4443. What's up, dude? What up, buddy? Uh, not much hanging in there. Welcome to the Hollywood Raw podcast, the number one anti-child trafficking entertainment news podcast out there. If you support any other podcast, just remember you are supporting child trafficking. So think about it. Have a deeper uh, look into yourself. What kind of podcast you're at? What kind of person you want to be? So uh, make sure uh, this is uh, – yeah, we are we are a nonprofit <laughs> Can you imagine we're a nonprofit podcast? We're a nonprofit podcast. I mean, we don't really make a ton of money here, so we're kind of nonprofit. Yeah, no, we're not we're not getting rich off this shit. Let's be real. But we are the number one entertainment news podcast in the country, uh, and in the world. That's what we like to tell ourselves. And you know, we, that's we, what we my mom that. says. She's yeah. like, Hey, you're number one in my book, Dax. Exactly. We got a good show today. We got Charlie Walk on the uh on the episode. Charlie Walk is I, He's a music legend, dude. This guy discovered mm-hmm. and helped mold some of the biggest talents in the world. Jessica Simpson, Post Malone, Shakira. I, I, I mean, hey, the, the, the list, list goes on and on. It's insane. I honestly. can't like, wait. I can't wait to ask him questions about 
you know, just some backstories with huge, huge singing artists, you know, like he's got to know some of the, the coolest details, cool backstories. I mean, he was in Jessica Simpson's book. Like he's got to just know it all. Yeah. And he was there during an interesting time. You know, again, he was the president of these major record labels and he was there during when they were trying to get really their music on on terrestrial radio and mm -hmm. CDs. And then was in during their transition, went to streaming music and music going on iPods. And, uh, you know, he was there during the, these crazy times and you really had to adapt to the future with this. And he also became a judge on one of these music shows and was almost going pretty much going to be the next Simon Cowell. Unfortunately, you know, there are some news stories that came out, which we're going to get into. We're not going to hold back. We're going to ask him about this stuff um, that made him have to leave the show. Um, but it was definitely a crazy news story. So we're going to ask him about all this stuff and more. Um, so I'm really excited to get into him. Before we talk to Charlie Walk, Dax, tell us about, for people who haven't listened to the Hollywood World podcast, tell them what they, uh, what they could learn from this and what, they could, what they're going to listen to. Well, can we get a review first? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. all right well we got to read a review because that's kind of our thing we like to say thank you to people out there leaving reviews so we like to read one on air and if you've got a second please go to itunes go to our page scroll down and uh leave us a review five stars and then we'll read it here on air as a little thank you um this one comes from caroline csr it says it's the t for me um, it says, I love this podcast and I look forward to the new episodes. It's so easy to listen to. And in, the tea is piping hot. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, what's funny is I don't even feel like it's tea. I feel like we're just curious people asking questions to these celebs. It's I like we, yeah. we find it fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of it actually turns into some pretty good tea. <laughs> yeah, I think we're <laughs> doing the Lord's my, work. Yeah. Um, no, but it's definitely good. Thank you uh, for the review. And that's the best thing to do to support this podcast. It helps out the algorithm if you leave a review. Five star only. It's the best thing to do to support us. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this podcast is the Hollywood Raw podcast. What we like to do is, yes, some tea comes out, but that's not our that's not our goal. I mean, it just it just happens because what we like to do is like we like to say is we humanize Hollywood. We reveal the fourth wall of Hollywood. We like to hear the backstory of how shit got made and kind of make it interesting and exciting and to be honest if we have an actor on we don't give a shit about you know about the role they're playing we we're, i'm more curious about how they got the role you know about the the, the grit and the the of the hustle of hollywood and that's what we talked about dax and i are veteran journalists in the hollywood game and we kind of bring that to the podcast world and uh i'm a street journalist i run out on the streets and try to you know interview celebrities on the streets and uh Dax is a journalist breaking stories and seeing photos and videos before they even get out there to the world. And we both have a lot of experience. We like to talk about our experience. And we've with had some you guys amazing guests. If this is your first time listening, go back. There's so many good episodes that we, you know, just interviews with some huge stars. I mean, like one of my favorite ones with Kelly Osborne, even though the audio is terrible <laughs> on that interview. Yeah. And please, we, we understand, but it was her computer that was making all the noise yeah. in the background. Uh, but like that interview I loved. I mean, Mark Cuban having him on after Shark Tank was really just sure. an unbelievable experience. Tony Robbins locking him down was really yeah. cool. So there's just so many, there's so much gold in our archive that if this is your first interview, please check out this one and then go back and listen to some of the older ones. Are really With that awesome. said, Dax, tell us about our guest today. 
Our guest today is a staple in the music industry, where he was the former president of Republic Records and Epic Rapper Records. Uh, he was uh, one of the judges on the Fox show The Four and was part of the team that helped launch careers such as Jessica Simpson, Sean Kingston, Natasha Bedingfield, Shakira, Enrique Iglesias, and so, so many more. Charlie Walk, welcome to Hollywood Raw. Charlie, uh, thank you for doing this, bud. It's uh, it's good to have you. Let's start with this. So for people who aren't familiar with you, who are some of the artists that you discovered or developed over the years? It's a long, long career um i happened to at a very early age know that i needed to be in the music business i was picking hits at like eight or nine years old i had a transistor am radio um, next to my head every morning and my mom and dad saw me sort of analyzing records songs that were on the radio um so i got into this very early i was a college rep for cbs records um freshman sophomore year and the first acts that i got to be involved with were new kids on the block Mariah Carey. Um, I got to meet Will Smith and work with Will Smith um, and just work my way through even like the Seattle scene that was bubbling at the time, Alice in Chains. I got to work with Pearl Jam. So I, I got thrown a lot of these new acts across all genres um, and really learned that was my college education by being, you know, in the market, figuring out how to break new kids on the block locally. Don't forget there was no social media. So the, there was, it was even like the beginning of MTV. So the funnel was very, very narrow. It wasn't a free-for-all. If you weren't on the radio, you had a real problem. Uh, if you weren't getting, uh, you know, picked by MTV to, you know, play your videos, you had a problem. So you had to figure out how to kind of do old-school warfare in a marketplace to excite a marketplace. Word of mouth meant a lot. I guess word of mouth is what viral means today. Um, and I still use a lot of that, you know, uh, knowledge and uh, that feel at the beginning because all of these artists, even back then, were startups. And every artist is a startup until they're not. So I got to see it all, the beginning of the Mariah Carey's at the small clubs with that mic and Richard T., this old incredible piano player, um, presenting her with just a mic and a, and a piano vocalist. And, and I remember those days. I remember new kids picking them up at their – I remember picking up – uh, Donnie Wahlberg and Mark was there and all the other brothers, Jimmy and the whole crew and the mom and got in a little beat up car that I had and drove around to radio stations and did under 21 uh, six o'clock shows with Coke, Pepsi and chips for, for moms and daughters back in the day. And you built the brand regionally, you know, out of Boston, locally and regionally. And, and then you watch them three years later, four years later, you know, playing stadiums. So I understand the feel. Of, of the beginning and the potential if you, number one, believe in the talents committed to, you know, really become and want to become the biggest stars in the world. But what, what did you see in some of these people? Because, I mean, for every Mariah Carey story, I'm sure there's 15 people that didn't turn into the biggest stars on the planet. But what did you see in a Mariah or John Mayer or... I mean, I, you've worked with so many people, I could sit here and list off a thousand names, but you know, what did you see in these peeps? So there were different phases of my career, right? So, so I didn't sign New Kids in the Block, but I got excited about New Kids in the Block. So when you're in a company, um, and especially in the early days, um, I, was, I was the promotion guy. I was the marketing promotion guy. My job was to figure it out. My job was to take these signings, these really important priority um, a level artists and figure it out in the region 
uh, that I was in. And then my region became national. First, it was like New England, then Northeast, then national. So I grew with it. So the beginning years, I wasn't involved in discovery. I was, in, I was involved in figuring out how to break them and make them the biggest stars in the world. And, and the way you, for me, was gut before data. I was able to help pick songs. Um, I was able to then take sort of that feel and go out and convince people market by market. And that's what it was. It was hand to hand combat market by market that, you know, you're in the presence of greatness. There hadn't been a boy band since the Beatles. Some would say the monkeys, but the truth is the Beatles were a boy band. So, and they're British and they're a British band. So in the United States marketplace, there hadn't been a boy band in modern day music to break. New Kids. And then after that, of course, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, One Direction was from the UK through Simon Cowell. But when you present it that way and you have great music, hanging tough, the right stuff, you know, it, you know, please don't go girl, Joey McIntyre with those blue eyes, you know, magical, magical moments uh, and a collective called New Kids in the Block. That's what you were selling. And you know what you were also selling? You know, I always said, as long as there were, you know, boys singing, there'd be little girls to buy those records, right? There was always that relationship. Uh, if you look at the history of pop music and if they, and if they, if they did it right and fulfilled a niche that didn't exist in the current marketplace, we would win. It took time. It took effort. But so, the, so my thing was to sort of dissect what was put in front of me at that phase of my career. That wasn't my signing phase um, or even my quote unquote, um, you know, artist development phase was sort of like taking what you had with the finished product and trying to make it rain. Um, and I think I got pretty good at doing that consistently um, just because I, I, I had that ear and feel, which I knew um, at a very, very, very early age that, that I had to sort of identify with that and, and fire hose that and, and push it through for myself. And I think that got me a really early head start in the business of music. That's interesting because that was your I, so I guess in the beginning part of your career, um, your strength in I guess throughout throughout your career was the promotion the to the marketing of it, uh, and, and that's a hard difficult gig because the industry keeps changing, technology keeps changing, so you have to adapt with it. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to you really have to keep changing with with the industry. So when you became the president of like the record label, how did your job change? Because at that point. You're in charge of the whole entire company, but what were your, you know, when you're the president of a record label, what exactly is your roles? What, I know it sounds like a basic question. You're the president of the label, but what exactly do you do when you're the president of the label? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You never stop promoting. You never stop promoting. You're responsible for making your numbers, managing the catalog that hopefully you inherited that continues to make money, right? That's the selling of catalog. Um, which is the artists that have been built on that label over the years way before me. And then there's something called frontline. Frontline is the frontline artists that are current that you have coming out and or you're signing. And that's the most critical and I think the most watched part, that market share, uh, especially today with streaming, um, all eyes on you. So your responsibility is to have different buckets of people that can deliver. First and foremost, A&R. A&R, those people are going out there, they're scouting, they're looking for the next song, the next artist that we together look at, decide to sign. Hopefully you're doing it before it becomes a thing in the marketplace, which becomes very expensive and you're competing with other labels. The idea is to find it inexpensively and develop and grow accordingly. So 
that was number one. Number two is who's going to market and promote, right? So who's going to market to at that time when I was president of Epic Records? Um, radio was critical. TV mattered back then. Letterman was a was a critical uh, show that we needed to be on, or the morning shows mattered. And everything's changed so much where it's so much more of a real-time game. Um, but the different buckets of A&R, media, uh, uh, marketing, promotion, sales mattered because there still were record stores back in the day. We were still shipping CDs. And it was a weird time because I remember back, I think 2005, we were competing against free, right? So there was Napster and all the kids were growing up and, and being taught that music was free. Can you imagine that? So, so we're competing against that while we're trying to find new stars, while we're trying to help the ones that are already out that maybe didn't have a hit to sort of regenerate their, their touring base, their fan base, and actually sell things. And then we try to create new things. I remember when we, I remember I was feeling about, I, was, I woke up feeling that we needed like a reggae pop star because I was such a fan of reggae. So we pretty much put together this Sean Kingston project that I executive produced with a young producer on NGR so wrote him. How does Sean Kingston, yeah. how does he find, how do you discover him? How is he, you, know, you say, you know, how does, how does he find you guys? Like, how does he get himself going where he gets Charlie Walk's attention? So he didn't, he didn't find us. I had saw him on MySpace, but most importantly, a young producer who I was in love with, J.R. Rodham, started working with him in the studio. And I was the president of Epic, and I flew there, and I met this 15-year-old. And uh, he could write. He could, this John Kingston could write these melodies. It wasn't really a manufactured thing. It was like this kid whose name really isn't Sean Kingston. It's Sean, but we had this Jamaica feel created the art, created the, not even illusion, but the vibe that this kid was coming from Jamaica or a Jamaica point of view uh, that we, we sort of put a layer of pop on top. And I remember like when we heard the demo of Beautiful Girls, I just added doo-wop, doo-wop, whoa, doo-wop. So I wanted to add like that little doo-wop slash reggae vibe, which made it a magical record. And those are some of the things that, you know, we do to, to, to help the artists being sort of like the artists behind the artist, but we developed it because it was a niche in the marketplace. It hadn't been like a reggae pop star in many, many years, except for probably Sean Paul. So all I simply did was like, how do you fill the marketplace with a sound that we know people love a new sound for the kids that they've never heard before. But I always say there's, there's 88 keys in the keyboard, right? So basically what happens is a lot of music gets repeated in different kinds of ways because there's only 88 keys in the keyboard, meaning the reggae sound has been in existence for all of our lives. But if the generation that's out there that's engaged in pop music hadn't heard it, it's new to them. So that was sort of the theory and philosophy kind of behind the, like the Sean Kingston. And we launched it, I remember, on Power 106 in Los Angeles, which was at America's top hip hop station at the time. And they played it probably 21 times in a row with the sirens and the horns, number one phones, people actually called the radio stations, their request lines. I mean, this is how much things have changed, right? They call the request lines and I'm getting all the calls back. Number one phone, Sean Kingston, Beautiful Girls. And then, you know, weeks later, it went number one. And that was an exciting time in which, and everything has changed, which we'll get into later, where we, we had to develop and break new artists because we weren't, we had no, where are we looking for these things? I guess MySpace kind of, but at the time there was MySpace. But, you know, it's not like we have TikTok today and Instagram and Snap and all these different social media platforms where 
the artists have shifted to be much more, you know, sort of fiercely independent, that independent mentality exists today because of the options they have to build leverage for themselves and make them important and create connectivity to fans. Back then, you know, I would call what, what Sean Kingston was, was concept development. It's no different than what Simon Cowell did with X Factor in creating One Direction or Fifth Harmony or what Lou Perlman uh, did back in the day in creating NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. We did that um, with Sean Kingston. And years later, we did that with Joe Jonas in creating DNCE because sometimes you have to make your own luck when you may not find that star. How do you, how do you create something, an entity that you own a piece of, that you put money behind and you push out to the marketplace using the leverage that you have being at a major label. So those, those are some of the things that I try to do and continue to try to do and thinking about, you know, artist development, but actually controlling the narrative over time and, de- and, and doing proper artist development. I love these a like type conversations with people that have been discovered and what the story was behind them. Do you have another artist that you can say like, this was the story to their growth, someone that everyone knows their name? Cause that's what I find so fascinating. There are so many stories. <laughs> Give um, me one, we, just one. And we could spend hours on it. And, and the, the, one of the greatest stories of all time in my career was the Shakira story of hips don't lie, which people know I've spoken about it a million times. And for those um, watching or listening that don't know, you know, we were at a critical place. I just became president of Epic Records. I was a very young, probably naive, um, maybe even arrogant president in there, a little bit cocky. And Shakira came in and her album had already launched weeks before I got there. And she asked me what her next single was. Her first single was called Don't Bother. And no one bothered. Uh, so now I'm in there and she's like, Mr. Pre- I'm being called Mr. President and I could see where this was going. And I said, you made a great artist record, incredible guitars, incredible sounds. But I don't hear a radio friendly song that sort of uh, comes after what you came off of, which was uh, whenever, whenever. So it was a very uh, contentious meeting because I'm basically telling a global superstar that there's no hits on the body of work she spent two years on. Um, and I was upset and I got calls from Sony and you can't talk, you can't do this, you have, you know, and I, and I, I, I always felt that you have to be honest and tell the truth or else you're sort of stuck in a situation where you're not going to be able to deliver the numbers and the artist is not going to be able to tour. And it just, it just puts a, a notch in the whole, in the whole ecosystem of what we're trying to do. So years before I worked with Wyclef and the Fugees, I went to see him and I asked him for an uptempo Caribbean Latin jam. And he goes, I have nothing, but. I think three years ago, he goes, I put out a uh, dance like this featuring Claudette from City High from Havana Nights 2. And I go, well, where is it? And he goes, well, it's up on iTunes. I'm like, well, what happened to the song? He goes, well, nothing. No one's heard it. I go, never got promoted, never got released. And he goes, yeah, nothing happened. So he plays me the song. I flip out. We had Praz in the studio and Jerry Wanda. They can confirm the story. Everyone, you know, success has a lot of fathers, but it was Wyclef, Jerry Wanda, and Praz from the Fugees. And before you know it, we stripped Claudette's vocal off the verses. Clef has a mic and goes, Shakira, Shakira. And Hips Don't Lie was made. Now, it was made without lyrics. We sent it to her. At the time, she reluctantly 
wanted to do it. She didn't really want to do it because she doesn't collaborate with others, but we got her to do it. She wrote the verses in the chorus, laid her vocals down. We stripped it onto her album that already exists. Six at the time there were CDs. The CDs, we already shipped 200,000. So you had to take the CDs back and put this song on and reshare. I mean, this is crazy times. I went uh, the next day to play the demo for my staff at Epic Records and I, and I was up all night. My wife didn't know where I was. I was so focused and I played for my staff. I said, this is going to be the biggest song of the year. And I play it for everyone and no one clapped. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the president. I'm like, come on. No, one, everyone's looking down, looking around, you know, when no one looking in the eyes like this. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the biggest, this will change Latin crossover music forever. No one clapped. So I got in a plane, flew to LA to Kiss FM. And I played it for, at the time, Julie Pilot, who's now at Apple Music. She flipped out, put it on, I think, the time JoJo's Nine at Nine, if he was still, he may have still been there. And number one phones. The rest is history. I mean, it became the biggest pop song of the decade, but the most important song for the Latin crossover audience. So at that time, Shakira could only play really New York, Miami, and LA. Now she could play the middle. Talk about Minneapolis and Cleveland and Chicago and St. Louis. And, and it, it, it changed culture forever. It allowed that sound to be global. And I remember the UK would not play that song because they believed there weren't enough Latin people. And you know, I remember the conversation fighting with the people at BBC and whatever else. They believed that there weren't enough Latin people in the UK to, to, to acknowledge that sound, that sound per se. And we fought and we eventually won. But even back then, can you imagine having this conversation about fighting to get a good song on the radio? A great song on the radio globally and, 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 but it changed her life forever. Um, and I think part of our job and responsibility is to do that for artists because sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they're so close to the core of what they're doing, they lose perspective. Number one, they've heard some of their music that they made themselves over and over and over so many times they lose perspective. Number two, when you become famous, you're surrounded by a lot of people that just say yes, 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 and don't tell you the truth. I think I can look back and say, for, say that I've always was the guy that told the truth for better or worse. And I think that made me sometimes controversial because I never conformed to what the artists wanted. I always tried to read the marketplace and never get, uh, to, I never get comfortable enough with my position, but I always feel uncomfortable that every time you put a new song out, no matter how big the star, we were a startup. You know, and it's like when Janet Jackson saying, what have you done for me lately? That is the music business. What have you done for me lately? Where's that hit? When you think about Dua Lipa today, she's only as good as her last hit. She's a hit-driven superstar. And by the way, I am her biggest fan. I just think she's dope. I think she's cool. I think she's sexy. I think her fashion, her, her approach is beyond. But she has to feed the hit machine. And I think you have to be in that mindset to understand um, the, the entire process. And I'll tell you something else when, it talk, when you talk about cultural change. You asked me other stories. I remember we were working with Will Smith back in the day and Benny Medina was his manager and they, we had the Men in Black movie coming out and we had Getting Jiggy with it, which um, 
no one wanted to play because it was a rap record. Let me say this again. Pop radio <laughs> in the United States wouldn't play getting jiggy with it because it was a rap record. There's nothing rap about that. Right? <laughs> and, and at that time, Jerry Seinfeld was hot. And he said in one of the episodes, I was just getting jiggy with it. So I was, I took that snippet and I remember layering it into the song and then sending that to radio because the, that the platform wasn't TikTok, it was Jerry Seinfeld. Nothing's really changed. If you think, what's the platform that influences people is where you go to try to not even trick them, but get them to engage. And we did that with getting jiggy with it. And then half the stations in the South wouldn't play it for whatever effing reasons. So then I went to malls with boom boxes, played the song and interviewed listeners of the local radio station, specifically at KRBE in Houston, Texas. And we made these videos with these big video cameras and we're no iPhones guys. Um, and went back to the radio stations and their chains and said, your audience doesn't consider this rap. They consider it, consider it pop from a really big pop movie star. So you could actually see like racism happening in some of these markets and, oh, that's a rap record. We're just in the artist and song business. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. But so it wasn't always easy. You know, these were the fights where you look back and, and you look at some of these careers. And I think, you know, if you were to speak to Will Smith today, he remembers that it was not easy to, to, to you know, get even Men in Black at, with that massive movie with Tommy Lee Jones or whatever else. The music side of it was, you know, radio was so fragmented uh, and controlled by Arbitron, which is their rating service, which is which, which is ridiculous and, and antiquated. Um, it was very difficult sometimes to break through the funnel. And that goes for, you know, even Hips Don't Lie into some of the Will Smith records back in the day. And even Destiny's Child, I remember No, No, No uh, with Destiny's Child when there were four girls in the group. Um, people didn't want to play it because it was R&B. And, you know, so there were so I was a part of the the, the fighting crew for Destiny's Child. Um, that launched Beyonce, you know, and, and, and I remember these fights specifically. And now you see how much cultures changed, thank God. But it wasn't, you know, we just we weren't just handed Destiny's Child. You can ask Beyonce. It took her four, it took four to five years. We met, I think we met her at 13 or 14. I mean, this just this, this, they weren't just put together by Matthew and Tina Knowles. And suddenly they came to the marketplace and everyone wanted the, the new Supremes. It was not that at all. It was actually the opposite. Fights and pushing. Um, um, it was, it was uh, brutal actually, but those fights, I think allowed me to, you know, be stronger and to always fight for what was right for the artists over the entire, uh, career, especially from thinking that, you know, people like to pigeonhole and do genre based things to artists when, I don't know, I just think people love music and I think, you know, and I think, I think pop music is popular. I think pop is a derivative of the word popular. And as long as you sort of keep your blinders on like that and think that way, even in today's marketplace for any modern manager, music executive, and don't listen to the noise, um, if you have a great artist or great talent, they can't break. Great always seems to win every time. Every time. Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually been in the studio with you, Charlie. I remember a few years back, just before we got to know each other, Rick Ross was playing his album. He had a new album, and he was just showing it for some editors and some reporters in, uh, at that studio in Times Square, and uh, it was pretty cool. And I remember you walked in, and Rick was like, Charlie, sit next to me. And he sat next to you, and he just loved having you there and had you like dance, kind of bounce to the music and stuff like that. 
How did you win the respect of the artists so they don't think you're like a, a suit? So they think you're on their side, so you have a good relationship with them, so they know your best interest is with them. But you also have to balance that because you're the president of the label. So you want to know, you know, want them to know, like, hey, there, this is a business behind it. We are supporting you, but we need to make money here. How do you balance that line? I'll be honest. I think I've been mister misunderstood a lot of my career because I was the guy that did dance on the desk. Okay. I was the guy that did dance and sing and 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 I was the guy that was quirky. I was the guy that got goosebumps. I was the guy that could hear a song and halfway through if I got goosebumps, play it again. And 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 be super animated. And I think a lot of times people didn't understand that, but that's how I rolled. And 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 so you know, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I remember, I remember this vividly with John Mayer, who I adore and love. And he was Eric Clapton when I met him at 17. That's how good he was. And wow. he had to hold back for years. I think he had to hold back for years. What you see today was just as good as 17, but he had to hold back his, his greatness. Um, um, and we did a why, great job with um, not giving it all away so early. Gotcha. Okay. Just not giving it all away so early. So when you say that though, you're not giving away, was that strategic or is that just sort of like, what was the point of him not doing? It's very hard to come out with an album with your body as a wonderland and neon and no such thing and, and be playing like Eric Clapton, right? You know, just jamming and jamming like he's doing today with, you know, um, Grateful Dead and whatever else. I think there's a process to it. You're giving you how much, you know, you got to really just take the audience with you and grow over time with them. They got to grow with you and you got to grow with them. I think after we came out with his first album, which was a huge, 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 massive success, he came out with his second album called Heavier Things. And his message was, I'm going to show you all I can play guitar. And if you listen to Heavier Things, it's heavier. Then um, the first single, I think it was called Bigger Than My Body. It's a heavy guitar record, pop record. We, we jammed it top 10 because we had to, and we wanted to, and but it wasn't really a big success. And also the audience kind of still wanted that John Mayer acoustic thing, right? That was what people fell in love with. And I think he was very against it. I think he wanted to show the other side of John Mayer. So we were in a critical position. The, the second album was out. He had Maroon 5 opening up for him on this tour and Adam Levine, harder to breathe, I mean, this was the next big thing. And every night, you're kind of watching both, and Maroon 5's coming on strong while we're in the middle of this sophomore period of this album that was very different than what got him there, right? What got him to, I would say, arenas, and amphitheaters, whatever else. One night at the show, in the middle of the show, he plays Cut 10. Now, usually Cut 10 on the album is a throwaway track, back in the day. Right now, who the hell knows what Cut 10 means? But if you're a cut 10, know what that means? You put it on the album, no one really cares. Or the artist certainly doesn't care. And cut 10 was a song called Daughters. And, and sorry, does he just, does he perform it just to see how the audience reacts? Or like, why I, would you perform cut 10 if no one really cares about it? I think he was playing in your set list of two hours. You're playing new songs from the album, right? And sometimes you're testing, sometimes you're not. But he played Daughters. And I watched husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, girlfriends and girlfriends, and everybody have the lighters. There were no phone lights, it was the lighters in the air. Mothers, be good to your dog. I'm watching them. Like, shit. With the soundboard, I get goosebumps. Show ends, meet and greet in the dressing room, and 
I go to John and I said, um, I need to talk to you. I watched Daughters tonight. We got to put this on as a single. I think it's going to be the smash. This is crazy. I'm so excited. He goes, what did you just say? <laughs> I said, we got to put, I just, I'm not doing A&R, but I, I think I can get the song. So the dressing room clears out. And he looks at me sternly and says, and he's a piece, I think he's 6'2 or 6'3, I'm 5'3, a little boy. He'd go up to his belly button. He looks at me and goes, <laughs> if you put that song out, I will have a <laughs> on my forehead for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, the chairman of my label calls me and said, did you tell John Mayer that daughter should be a single? Well, I was at the show and I just, did you tell John Mayer? The daughter should be so, yeah, I did. Don't do your walk, walk. I'll fire you. It's a career ender. Do you hear me? Now I've got, now am I going to get fired? I got the artist who I adore and love hating me. My boss wants to fire me. So I went into the office the next day and shut the door. And I put it on 40 radio stations. You still call 40 radio stations? I put it on. <laughs> I had 40 radio stations add the song. <laughs> a year later, we won Song of the Year at the Grammys. We won Best Male Pop Vocal at the Grammys. And in his speech, he said, I still don't think it should be a single. And we, <laughs> and we, and we, and we sold millions and millions of records and, you know, became one of the greatest classics of all time. And this is not an ego thing. All I did was go to a show and watch people sing a song. You understand this? I didn't write it. I didn't produce it. I have no agenda except helping the artist. And I guarantee today, if I see John today, he'll still look at me weird about it. You know what I mean? And those are the casualties of the game. And I have no emotion about it. It is what it is. But I did the right thing at the right time for the artist. Does that make sense? And yeah. I can, we, can, we can spend hours here telling the stories, but the behind-the-scenes stories, behind-the-artist stories – not just me, any professional uh, music executives that, that, that's been in the position that I've been in. Um, I've shared these stories with Clive Davis over the years, who's the greatest of all time um, at this, much better than me, um, from the master, Clive Davis. And, you know, so, so, so these, these things continued and continue when um, sometimes the artists just don't know. And they've even written these songs because they're so close to it. And... When you write a song, it's it's your words and lyrics and melodies that come out of you. It's like having a child, right? So so I can't question how they feel. All I can try to do is guide them to the marketplace for what brings them success for the most people to engage with their music, right? The job is to get people to engage with their music, their live show where they make most of their money and be a part of their journey. And I don't know how you can really fight me on that if that's what we're trying to do here. But to this day, it's the biggest, I think, artist challenge sometimes of, you know, the music at the end of the day is the product that matters, right? It's the driving product of these artists. So you do have to get it right because it's competitive. It's dog eat dog. You have labels trying to kill each other. And the music business is a very, very rough business. People trying to take each other out. People try to take me out um, at my highest moment. And so, 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 you have to be strong and you have to understand that as long as you stand behind your feel, your gut, and you stand behind the artist, um, which what some people do and some people don't, at least I know that I've done that. Um, that's why I think over years I've had such consistency with success because I've, I have a God given talent of 
of finding it and figuring it out and understanding the marketplace, but also I know how to work with the artists to, to hopefully have the best outcome for them. So you've obviously had a ton of success with huge stars. Is there anyone that's ever come across your path that you didn't sign or you didn't put on your label that now you regret looking back years later? Yeah. I mean, it's Lady Gaga, you know, um, we, we passed on her because we weren't sure. Um, other labels passed on her. She was signed, then dropped. And then Jimmy Iovine smartly signed her and did an amazing job with her. The music wasn't there. We didn't have those red one song, the red one songs that broke her, you know, let's dance broke actually out of Canada. We didn't have that. We had other songs that, I mean, I remember her being in my office with the, disco ball and a DJ shorts and a T and you knew you were in the presence of greatness. But I remember at the time I couldn't get my boss who signs the checks to, to sign off. I think I would have taken that shot. And by the way, maybe I should have screamed loud enough to make, to write that check. But I, I was a little bit influenced by him saying she was rubbish and I, and I didn't have the guts or the balls to challenge him at that time. So I'll take responsibility for being one of the many labels that didn't sign her. But I'll tell you, many years later, um, I had signed Haley Steinfeld. And Haley was playing um, Fallon uh, with a big song. We had, and I was up with Haley and her mom. And guess who was uh, on the couch that night? Lady Gaga. So in the hallway, I introduced Haley to Lady Gaga took the picture and Gaga goes, Hey, Charlie, wish do you still wish you, I didn't sign me. <laughs> she, she remembered it. She stored she that was, in there. Her receipts were still coming out. <laughs> and she gave me that wink and I'm like, <laughs> and I just sat there and smiled. And I think I went to the bathroom and just, I was so embarrassed in front of Haley and her mother and everyone, but like, she's a real artist. And, uh, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed of it, but yeah, it happens. It happens all the time, and um, and so so that's just you know part of the, part of the game. But then there's other times, you know, um, we helped rejuvenate Nick Jonas um, after the Jonas Brothers broke up. Nick went solo, and we did a great job with a song called Jealous, and his brand was on fire for the first time. He had a really big hit. These guys, the Jonas Brothers, really never had hits, right? They were very Disney eccentric and. They were, they were a great visual brand, but the, the music never really sort of sold or streamed. And um, I'm telling you this story for a reason, because this is about what concept development is. And um, I meant I, I flew with, uh, at the time, Phil McIntyre, their manager today, to Vegas to see Joe, who was DJing, making a little bit of money DJing in Vegas. And we sat around Wynn Steakhouse, and Joe was just like, you know, I want to do something. And we came up with an idea that if Maroon 5 and Bruno Mars were to have a baby, it would be this group. And we named the group at that dinner Sway. So the original name for DNCE was Sway. We couldn't trademark, but at that dinner, I remember, again, a couple glasses of wine. I said, Joe, do you want to do you want to do this and be the biggest star in the world? He goes, yeah, I do. I go, I, I, I can't hear you, Joe. This is, again, part of, I guess, my quirkiness. I said, I need, you to, I need to get in this table right now and scream to everyone in this restaurant that you want to be the biggest star in the world. Because I want to be the biggest star in the world. I go, let's do it. And from there, we, we, we put together DNCE uh, and made a song called Cake by the Ocean that his girlfriend at the time, Gigi Hadid, co-directed. We had the fat Jew who was huge on social media um, 
guest uh, starring it. We put the song out. I get I got the iHeart Media every hour on the hour premiere across America. I mean, we dogpiled this thing. Every major market, streaming, Spotify at the time. We put it out. Nothing happened. Put out Cape by the Ocean, September. Nothing happened. October, nothing happened. Now, in the hallways where I was working at the time, Republic Records, you know, you hear the whispers. Charlie, Charlie's project. Charlie's project. Charlie's project. Stiff, stiff, stiff. And I could walk down the hallway and feel the, the, the quietness, the whispers. And then it came into Christmas and, you know, we have a disaster on our hands. Nothing happened with a song that I believe, we believed. Wendy Goldstein, an incredible A&R lady who did this with us, did this with me as partners. Couldn't believe how can this song is as is, 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 is quirky and interesting and uh, pure pop not break with Joe Jonas as the lead singer. So luckily, we were able to get a sync in a Sprint commercial in January of that year. This is four or five months after the song came out. And we get this sync. And the sync wasn't even the lyric. It was boom, 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 And suddenly Shazam, right? Take your phone and Shazam blows up in all of the markets in which the commercial was running. That ended up being the tipping point of the breaking of that song. And the rest is history. But how does how do everyone gravitate it when it's in a commercial? But if it was playing on the radio months earlier, no one cared. So that's the eighth wonder of the world. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. And, and that's the beauty, I guess, of the music business. You just never know. Why does a song break in, on TikTok and go viral of a crappy artist? Oh. Right? It's just you yeah. just don't know. You just, so what did I know? I know we had a star and a hit. Is that fair? But you don't your 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 audience, they're the they're the bosses of us at the end of the day, even for this, for Hollywood Raw, which is my favorite program. <laughs> you know, we hope that people like what we're doing, right? We hope people like a song, but you just never know what an audience is gonna, you know gravitate to or not you think you know but in that situation and it's a lesson for me like i did top down big shot all the relationships blew it out and i looked like an a-hole because nothing happened and i felt really i mean look i was depressed for weeks on that one like what am i losing it i don't even know uh, what am i doing i can't believe this i spent all this money but thank god we got that sync because that's what lit the spark that passive what is, like, what is that done? And that may have been the hook of the song as opposed to cake by the ocean. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that subliminal hook may have been the magic that spark that ignited the whole DNC movement for that period of time. But the truth of the matter is, and I'll just show you how this all connects. When we signed Joe, we said, look, if we break DNCE, we want to have the Jonas Brothers on here if you were to get back together. And my thing was, like, if you can get Nick hot again and get Joe hot again individually, collectively, you got the Jonas Brothers back, right? Yeah. And that's what happened. Wow. I'm a sucker for you. No, I wasn't there for that. But, you know, it was the we built the perfect storm and platform for the Jonas Brothers to have an older audience, the kids that grew up with them and even new fans due to the individualism of the music and journey of both kids.
So cool. I love, I love these stories. It's such a strategy. It's such a strategy to really kind of really push the songs and make sure that the, the chances of it succeeding will do well. Um, in the past few years, we saw a lot of artists go independent. Macklemore, Chance the Rapper, they, you know, they they kind of gimmick themselves as independent artists, and they've done they've been pretty successful. Do you see more artists going independently, and do you see the record label kind of maybe that model kind of diminishing, or like where do you see the f- future of the record labels and stuff? So I'll tell you exactly how it is because I'm fiercely independent now, and I'm developing talent. I have a very big producer, KBZ, who did the Boot song, 24K Golden. Um, we found them at 17. I have Stefan Benz, and they're all independent. So, so um, it's all about market share today. So the labels have less people working for them, and they'd rather overpay for a song or an artist that's done the work and has the leverage, streams, likes, fan base. Does that make sense? They'd rather do that. They'll get there faster. They'll get their market share than spend five years developing an act. So, 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 so the truth is those like myself and others that really like developing artists over time, you know, we create production deals. we become partners with these artists. We fund it ourselves, develop and grow. And then we create bidding wars. We're happy to have someone on a major label for a short term distribution deal for them to celebrate market share, to drive a stock. Warner Music Group, publicly traded. Universal Music Group, going to be publicly traded. Uh, um, um, you know, so 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 when you think about Spotify, right? You know, publicly traded. Apple, publicly traded. So these 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 music entities are publicly traded. So it is about market share, and market share drives stock prices and whatever else. So the artist development game, as much as any label could come on here and say they're developing artists, they're not. They'd rather just pick off the best of the best that they see have done the work. You know, and even at Republic back in the day when we helped break the weekend and we spent a lot of time with the weekend, he had already, you know, he was already able to, you know, uh, sell out the O2 or do three radio cities or the Greek in LA. He did the work over many years. Now, did we absolutely help elevate the music, uh, the marketing, the promotion? 100%. And he would tell you that. Um, but it was a distribution deal. And what a distribution, a distribution deal means, a distribution deal means that he owns his masters. So we get a piece of the streams, but he is the owner of his recordings. He is the owner of his tour. He's the owner of his merch. He controls his brand. So I think artists really, the artists that are, that are really in it to win it and are confident and don't necessarily need to be funded um, have this independent mentality with their crew their management, their guys and girls around them to go out and create leverage for themselves. And then there's so much money offered when you create leverage because everyone wants the next, the new, uh, and that market share. Uh, bidding wars get created. And, um, and, 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 and what happens is you end up overpaying for talent. Um, I do think there's a few guys still in the game uh, that do that. I think Ron Perry, is, who, who's helped develop Kid Leroy, at Columbia, Kid, Kid Leroy has been developing over the last many years. If you've watched this, it didn't just happen overnight. And, and so I, I love that artist development story. But if you really look around at the superstars in our business today, there hasn't been a lot of new ones. Look, Billy was signed at 14, but her team of managers and Justin, her, her, her label. I remember Justin coming to my house playing me Ocean Eyes many years ago. And how do we get it in the radio? How do we break this? 
She didn't break overnight. This girl's been doing it since she's 14 years old, maybe 13. You guys will know better than me. You know, and so then you look and see them disappear, but it's never that way. It is absolutely at least a five-year process to break an artist. And that's what no one sees. No one sees Post Malone. We we signed Post Malone on White Iverson breaking on SoundCloud. Okay. And he was a very different person when you met him. You know, you looked at him and you weren't sure. And then, you know, but you knew he could write and over time just, just wrote classics. And you know he can play in the country world, the rock world, hip hop world, pop world. Um, but that took years and years and years if you were to sit with him or his managers who were very good friends of mine. These were these were fights. I remember again back in the day going to iHeartMedia over uh, White Iverson, congratulations, and they they iHeartMedia did not break post Malone. No one really believed they thought he was awkward looking and didn't look like a star. I remember these conversations. He post didn't just break. These were wars we fought. And I think, you know, every artist does need these troopers on the ground, you know, pushing and pushing great. And eventually, as I said at the beginning of this, great matters, great cuts through. But not anyone, even most people don't see any of this until there's traction, until people start raising their hands stopping the scroll saying what was that and that sort of multiplying over time these things take a really really long time every single time for the biggest stars in the world there's no such yeah. thing though you know what are we gonna say? i, I want a name of someone that's up and coming that people don't know about yet but you see the talent there you see in three five years these this person is going to be the next big star what would whose name would that be and, and and I have to say this because it's someone that I'm working with, and I'll give you an example. I'm working with a kid that I met um, who was living in South Africa at 11 years old, and uh, someone brought his family and him to New York to meet me, uh, a guy named Manny Mahetta, so I love. I always saw him on the red carpet whenever I saw Adam and you guys. Brought him to me, and I looked, looked at this kid, and I looked at his father. His father's 6'1", stunning, blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm looking at this kid, and I heard him sing. And then he played me a song that he wrote. And I knew he was had that God-given starship. And I always ask the mother. It's always like the mothers that know. Tina Knowles, Joan Grande, um, Haley Samuel's mother, Sherry. I always say, what was your kid like at five or six or seven? They all say the same thing. Singing and dancing. In fact, some say they were dancing and singing in their belly. And it's a consistent answer for these kids that have that star chip dna does that make sense yeah that that you just it's a consistent answer every time from the mother or father especially the moms because none of these moms came from music these kids just came out like aliens <laughs> and i got goosebumps when the mom's telling me the story about this child so we signed him and now he's 14 and now we're getting the calls and now are people starting to notice and he just put out his album and you know, all that stuff starting to happen. We're not trying to rush to break a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, but then he'll be 15 in September. There's a process. At 16 is probably the sweet spot where we have a, a gold medalist, someone that's been training for the Music Olympics for five years. And, you know, I get the DMs, you know, why are you promoting? What's going on? Is he ever going to break? And I'm like, you're all morons. It takes five years. And there's no money for five years. 
and you deal with the parents and the chaos and you move someone and you get it court approved with the judge. So you have a proper contract and you do all these things that you have to do. And he'll be probably one of the biggest stars in the world. Cause guess what? No one's training anyone. No one's doing development and there will be a bidding war one day, but it's a process. So uh, he, he's someone that I just believe in and I'm just applying what I know and what I feel and not trying to be listening to any noise or, you know, and we all know there's so much noise out there for anything we believe in at the beginning. No one believes you're always the, you're always the lonely guy or girl in the room until they break. And I remember specifically Ariana Grande. Okay. This is, a, this is a really important story for people to know. When I was at a label, uh, she had been signed and she was sort of shelved. She only had 18 million followers at the time because of Sam and Cat. She's on a Nickelodeon show. No one could find her sound, but I'm looking at the roster saying she's our next to Taylor. She's our biggest girl with 18 million followers. What does that mean? People like her. Is that fair? I like yeah. her, 18 million followers. So I was like, what are we doing with her? And I was told by one of the people there, oh, I don't know. We can't find her sound. It's expensive. It's hard. She doesn't really write. I'm like, but people like her. Nickelodeon stars don't break, only Disney stars break. Name a Nickelodeon star. Name a Nickelodeon star that actually broke in music. And there hadn't been one. I thought that was the challenge and the good news, right? So we go to LA, go to her house, and you know, we 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 meet with her. We come up with a plan and strategy. And then one day, I'm hearing through the wall a song called The Way featuring Mac Miller. And I flipped out. And we put it out. And there was no manager at the time, except uh, I think her managers were the girls that found her. Jen Merlino and Stephanie Simon from Entitled were actually the, the amazing ladies that found her uh, at 12 or 13 and put her on Salmon Cat. I mean, just amazing people. And I just said to them, we're going to put this song out. And they weren't music managers, they were more TV film. And I'm like, well, if she has 18 million followers and if 250,000 people downloaded the song on iTunes, a very small percentage, we'd have a number one single. We put it out. What happened? Number one, Number single. one single. And that was the be- <laughs> and that was the beginning. And I think Scooter came in later, six months or a year later. But that's really that's really what happened. There's you know, if we ask anyone, that's the truth of what happened. Um, so I think in any label, it takes someone to believe, whether it's me or somebody else. Every artist needs a champion at the beginning, because every door will be shut every single time until you prove concept and it's, it's, it still remains true today. So I've always, again, my philosophy and anything that you do in life is just, if you believe, do not listen to the noise, do not be distracted, do not care, fight your way through it. If you truly believe someone has that talent. And when I, and I, and I did it with Haley Steinfeld and I was told, again, this is important stories for people just to like, you know, at least, you know, have some belief in your own, you know, gut as you're going through anything you're doing in life. You know, Haley really wanted to sing. And, and I had just met her and her mom at an event. I didn't even know who she was, to be honest. And she told me she was nominated for an Oscar at 14 for True Grit. She said, I can sing. And I looked in her eyes and she wanted to play me demos. And I didn't even care to listen because I didn't care if she could really sing. What I knew was this 14-year-old was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. That's all I needed to know. And I looked in her eyes. She said, I can do this. We signed her. Now, when I signed her, you know, we have the committeeats. I call them committeeats, not committees, committeeats. Name the last actress that became a singer. 
I, 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 I believe we can help her and maybe we can make some music movies with her. And well, why would we sign an actress and make her a singer? And, you know, I did. And I, I did. I, I give credit to the label at the time because they let me. They let me do, I guess they called it the Charlie Walk. They let me go, spend time with her. Uh, and we, we, we together with our, our team, you know, brought her to a massive amount of streams, which actually helped her TV and film career and her brand. She became a much bigger star. And I, and I think that model is really super interesting, whether it's Addison Ray trying to sing or whatever else, right? Of thinking about how do you conquer the entertainment business. If you're interested in music and you're interested in TV and film, there is a way to do it all. But everyone, you know, and again, when you think about lessons here, when I signed Julia Michaels, she was a very big writer. And then the same conversation is what was the last writer to become an artist? Carol King. Yeah. Now I'm like sitting here, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, I believe in her. And she's on every demo for Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber. Sorry. Yeah. And even some of the Haley records. And she sings incredibly well. And she's dope as fuck. Like, what are we doing? And I believed in her. And she became one of the, and she got nominated for an Oscar and nominated for a Grammy the, a year later with uh, with issues for Best New Artist. So so that's just been me. And I think, you know, that that sort of uh, uh, approach to it all, um, nothing ever changes whether I'm whether I'm, you know, 49, 50, 18, 19. That thought process of anything you do, if you believe in it and you create a strategy, you have a better chance of having success and moving culture than doing committees. Um, and that would be the most important lesson that I could you know, share with you guys along my journey. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long one. I, so you were a judge on a music uh, competition show, you know, um, Before, which I right? thought you were a good judge. I actually thought, I like judges like you, someone like a Simon Cowell that come from the the marketing, the business era, not just the J-Lo or the, the Blake Shellen. I want someone who really knows talent, how to mold talent, or have to, really get their 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 career going and i thought you're really good how was your experience being a judge on one of those shows like do you feel like do they tell do the producers tell you as far as you know this is what we want you to do or do they allow you do they allow charlie to be charlie so both um first of all i my journey was to I, I wanted to follow the, the footsteps of Simon Cowell. I wanted to have my own production company. I wanted my own TV show. I wanted to sort of, I love what he did with, you know, people don't understand what this guy did. I mean, he created One Direction. You know, all those kids in One Direction auditioned, right? Fifth Harmony, they made up. Camila Cabello auditioned, drove from Miami to the Carolinas to audition. She's a friend of mine. I know the whole story. You gotta respect the artist development side of, of, of what that is. So I was excited for, my next journey to sort of start being a judge and then creating a ecosystem of concept development, creating talent, live television, showing a different side to it, a little bit more of a grittier side, a little bit more of a harder side and honest side. Um, so, so they did try to produce us, but they did give us a lot of freedom to let us get in the huddle and, 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 and battle it out. Um, I enjoyed it. I will tell you it was super, it was the most intense thing I ever did in, in my life because I felt the pressure. And I'll tell you what the pressure was. Still being a president of a record label, being responsible for my artists and my employees while going on a TV show. And you really get sucked into this TV thing when you're doing it. You're living in L.A. away from your family. I've got four kids and a wife and a puppy. 
you're living in a hotel. Um, it's it's essentially hair, makeup, rehearsals, uh, listening to the talent, getting a sense of kind of what's going to happen live. We, we were live to tape, but still live with 500 people in our kind of dome arena. And um, you get you get you get you get sort of put into that the vortex of, of what that was, because you want to give your best performance possible. Plus, I was told to be, you know, camera ready. What does that mean? You're losing 10 or 15 pounds. You know, so, so there's a whole process to it, which I didn't really understand. I thought you just go on and do your thing. But no, 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 no. It's, it's, there's a lot to it. Um, I enjoyed it. And I would do it again. I would do it again if I were able to be an executive producer and control the narrative my way. Um, but it was one hell of an experience. I mean, Khaled was Khaled's been my friend for years. Diddy, the same. Megan's been a little sister. I, I got to know Fergie, who I didn't know very well, but sweetheart, we all had a great crew. Um, when I was there, there was a girl named Javaya who didn't win, but I thought if I actually got behind her, she had this reggae, reggae, like, you know, that female reggae vibe thing going that she was just fantastic. And that was something that I actually thought could have broken from that show because the truth is nothing's broken from The Voice and nothing's broken from uh, American Idol in many, many years. In fact, there's only been a few stars that broken American Idol. If you really look at it, no one's really broken except for Kelly Clarkson, uh, Carrie Underwood, right? If you really look at the whole show, uh, if you look at the whole show process over the years and, you know, uh, X Factor failed in the U.S., but it gave you an American group called Fifth Harmony. Um, we now know X Factor shut down in the UK after 17 or 18 years, but that gave you, you know, one direction uh, that broke basically virally from the UK, flown over to the US and gave us Harry Styles. So it's been an incredible journey for those shows. But I felt there was a new, there could have been a new way of maybe taking this show that I didn't control, possibly creating a new one that I could control. So interesting. I'm When you say that, it's, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more people that have broken out because of the audience size. I mean, obviously, I know when Kelly Clarkson made it big, the audience was massive on American Idol. So everyone around the country was watching it. But after so many contestants, it's crazy that we haven't seen more names. With the girl that you mentioned, is there a reason that you didn't go after her to continue that growth in the music industry with her post the show? She, she didn't win, right? So what you try to do is use the platform of Fox and, and Diddy, who was executive producer, taking the winner, nurturing the winner, putting, behind, putting money behind it, which the contract said, and pushing it through over time and getting that ready for next season. Selling the fact that someone won and broke helps you with season two. That never happened because she didn't win. And, um, and that's why that didn't. And, and, and unfortunately... I still believe she's a star, but if you don't have the right team at the right time, and timing is a big part of this too, guys, yeah. right? There's a window. She had that window, but the window never got activated because she didn't win. But like, I feel like a lot of the American Idol, like people that became big, they didn't win necessarily either. I mean, I mean, Fantasia was not a winner. Uh, what was uh, Jennifer Hudson didn't win, Jennifer but they Hudson still became well, don't, big don't, stars. Don't, don't, don't forget, though, at that time, American Idol was a franchise and had how many viewers? So sure, you, millions and you, millions. You could, have, you could have second, third, fourth, fifth place people because there were so many eyeballs, and you can actually look at the data and say, hey, people really liked her, but she didn't win. This show was so new uh, and so young 
and we really didn't have a massive audience, truth be told, to have that leverage to be able to pluck and push. Gotcha. The show started off, I think, as an experiment and, and didn't actually end up being a show that was sticky enough to stay. Gotcha. So I want to ask, you know, this is actually a, obviously a sensitive subject, but you left the show. You weren't you weren't like, oh, you left the show um, because there was some news that came out when you were the judge that you were accused of sexual misconduct. And then you stepped mm -hmm. down from the show because you said, I don't want to take the attention mm -hmm. away from the show, which I thought was a very bold and interesting move. Um, how what was your thoughts when all that kind of went down? Well, I wish I wish I didn't do that. I wish I had a voice. It was such a crazy time uh, in this new movement. And um, people were taking out people. Um, I believe that I was taken out unfairly. You know, I had let someone go 17 years prior to another company. And the person sees me on TV and writes an open letter how it was inappropriate. And, and, and at that moment, at that time, I was so shocked and I didn't even know how to respond except to respond the way that I did and, and, and was shell-shocked. Um, and I, you know, I, I, when I look back, I think I, I probably should have been a fighter. And it wasn't about taking someone out. It wasn't about even, quote-unquote, the fight. It's like you just can't do that to people. And I also think if I didn't go on TV, I wouldn't have become a target. And I think when you become... Uh, at that time, one of the most powerful people in music and going on a TV show in and around that movement, and they hadn't sort of taken someone out on music. That's what happened. And the truth be told, no one was taken out after me. So, so, so we kind of have a sense of what happened, but I don't look back. I look, try to look ahead. Jimmy Iovine, who's one of the greats of all time, told me one thing, you can't look in the rearview mirror. It'll hurt your neck. And that's sort of how I live by today. The uh, the accuser actually wrote a book. Um, I so I did a yes. little looking up. So she wrote a book, uh, mm -hmm. like and I could be wrong, but it was like something like how to, like seduce, how to hook up at work or something like that, or hook up with your boss or move ahead. Yes, what, yes. This this this, this woman that? who we this woman who I had hired and we actually let go, um, five years after her allegations of me being quote unquote inappropriate wrote a book um, called Men You Dating. This was all on, we, we found out by Googling it actually, which no one in the media chose to do or write. And the book talked about how to have sex with your coworker in the supply closet during midday sex, maybe even during your lunch hour. And I remember reading this and basically crying saying, how is no one showing the other side to this? How does someone accuse someone of sexual misconduct or being inappropriate and then five years later, Five years later, after those allegations, write a book that was published, and I showed it to I showed it to Billboard, I showed it to the New York Times, and no one would not only print it. Still to this day, no one would print it. And then they would say, "Well, she still said it. You're clickbait. You're famous. You're Charlie Walk." And that was what was happening at that time. Um, and again, you know, you consider and be angry about it. I'll forever mentally be scarred from it. But I can tell you, every artist I'm in touch with, every female artist I'm in touch with, biggest stars in the world, I consult with. And you move on and you know your truth, you know who you are, the best friends, the best family. And, that's, and, and then also my responsibility today is to help artists and do what I do, to have my God-given talents um, help people. I'm not going to ever stop doing it. No one's going to ever get in the way of me doing that.
so when that stuff's going down, do do other artists reach out to you? Like, how did the industry kind of treat you? You know, do they? Do people so it's a great. So it's a great. It's a great question. So what what they don't do is they don't do it forward facing. They do it privately. You know, whether they came to my house or FaceTime me or called me or sent me video messages or DM me, no one goes public because they're afraid of. I mean, we've all seen what happened this week with the Me Too movement and the demise and, and, and the money trail and why certain people get hit and why others are protected. And we're finding out more and more, you know, what, what, what unfortunately, uh, the good of the movements turn, you know, somewhat sour if you read the recent news. So, 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 you know, for me, everyone was afraid of getting hit and, and by, by being forward facing. I think a lot's changed in the last four years. This was years ago. Um, today I'm, you know, very forward facing with a lot of the artists, but back then, you know, they all, all the ladies that I've broken and worked with, uh, from executives to artists all reached out and, you know, were, were, were horrified. Um, and it was a very tough period, very, very tough period, but thank God for amazing friends, strong family and incredible life. Good. And so, then where yeah. did you guys, and excuse me for my lack of knowledge here, but did you guys have some kind of court case? Did that settle or go? To there, was no, or there, was, there was no court there? case. There was no court case. There was nothing. And I also think back in the day, there were crazy times. We all went out with our assistants back in the, what years were these? 2004, three, we all went out. It was a, it was a family. It was a unit. Now what's happened today is no one's mentoring anyone. Everyone's afraid to have dinners and drinks. It's everything's changed. And, you know, I feel bad because part of the camaraderie of inviting people to the studio or backstage to meet the artists, I was that guy. I, I was inclusive for everyone, including all the assistants. I was the Pied Piper of that. I unfortunately will never be in that position to do that. I will never able, I will never be able to mentor that way uh, again. And I know most of the people I can speak in the music business aren't going to be able to mentor that way ever again, because anyone can say anything. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that's sort of the downfall of where we're at today with it. Um, but all I can tell you guys is, you know, onward and upward, I'll onward and upward and, and, and be present, look forward and try to do the best you can be. I want to change direction a little bit. What's so, you know, cause I want to kind of wrap up this whole interview, but what is the, someone who's trying to get involved in the music industry? What's the biggest advice you say to them? What's the one thing you want them to walk away with from a conversation with Charlie Walk? So everyone hits me up. How do I get signed to a major label? You're Charlie Walk. I don't even know what that means. I, every artist wants to be signed to a major label. You've got to do the work. It takes time. And you've got to know the difference between good and great. Great wins every time. You have to have fans. You have to have a fan base. You have to create your own leverage. You have to stop the scroll on Instagram. So people stop and see this magic, this thing, this artist, this song that they, that they engage with, right? All of these things are the way to break or the way to have success. I, I find that a lot of people either don't want to do the work, don't understand the work, or think that they're going to get signed to a label because their music's good but they have no fans and now suddenly the label's going to spend all this money and do all the work for them. No, most rosters of a label are 80 to hundred artists. Okay. 80 to hundred artists. And guess what their job is at a label to drive market share. 
drops to drive market share. So are you going to start trying to break the artist with 10,000 followers, no streams or little low engagement across all platforms? No, you're That's not. a lot of work. It's too much work. You'd rather overpay. You'd rather overpay for an artist that's done the work every time. And that's the modern music business today. So, so there's the camps of these artists and managers and even people like myself today that's not at a major label that I'm willing to develop and take bets because for some reason I'm able to kind of like pick talent early enough where I can get in and, 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 and allow enough time for maturity and growth. The labels don't have to do that. Because they are making so much money, they can overpay. They can afford to overpay and not have the overhead. And hopefully they can do the best. If all money is equal, if the deal is a million dollars for this artist, may the best label with the best team get it. Because everyone's looking at the same data, right? Every label is looking at the same data today. Every label, for the most part, has the same checkbook. So it does come down to the executives at that label that are passionate, that care, that actually can come up with a strategic plan to break that artist. So, 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 so that's critical. But the step before is like, if I were an artist, do the work. If you're that good, do the work, create leverage. And then when you make that deal with the major, it's a very different deal. You're in control of that deal. You're in control of your masters. You're in control of everything. It's a distribution deal. And it's a shorter term because if someone leaves that label, if your champion leaves that label, you're stuck, right? So you want to have leverage where you can do a shorter term distribution deal with the label and renegotiate when appropriate. And that to me is the best way. If you're that good, if you're that uh, independent and you're that sophisticated, you'll find your way to do that. And, and that would be my best advice to everybody that wants to do this that's committed to do this in the modern music business today. My last question for you is who was the most challenging artist to work with? <laughs> you know, the one that was just combative with, you know, really just, you know, was very into their work, maybe was kind of ch nervous of working with you just because if you're on the other side of the line, you're not the artist, even though you have an artist mind, you're on the business side, you know, and they were just very combative about their ideas, their opinions and their direction. Um, I would say probably George Michael. Now, I didn't get to really work that close, but I remember, you know, he handed in his albums and he handed in his visuals. And I, I think those were sort of one way conversations. Um, and even the single choices were pretty much, you know, this is a guy that produced and performed all of his records for the most part. If you listen to the Faith album, and I was very young at that point when that brilliant, he, he, he executive produced it, you know, wrote, sang, and played every instrument on that. I don't know if people really understand that. He was that good. Um, and I think that allowed him to, to, to basically dictate to us what we were to do. I mean, he did the same thing with Wham! and to George Michael's solo career. Um, he was, you know, God rest his soul, he was amazing. But he was, he was, he was that guy. He was very specific. And Prince was also the same way when I met Prince a few times. These guys are just icons that had their vision and you know what our job, we were their soldiers. Our jobs were to, at the time, get the song played in the radio, get the video out there, and do whatever it took to really just uh, create exposure uh, to, the, to the masses. That was our gig for those, for, those, for those icons. And then, you know, other artists, you know, much more easier to work with. I think sometimes uh, the reputation of music executives was tricky because a lot you couldn't trust. 
a few actually knew what they were doing. You don't really need a degree to get in the music business, right? What is the point of entry? What's the barrier to entry? There's none to be a manager, even to be executive. Um, so very few people, you know, were educated and had that um, the feel that uh, artists could connect to. I mean, but we look back, we know the legends and who they were, the Mo Austins, Jimmy Iovines, Clyde Davises. You know, those guys were the ones that actually had the feel. And those, those were artists. Those were the artists behind the artists um, um, that, that made the difference. Um, and, and so, so today you have less of those type of players in the game, but it's also an opportunity because of so many platforms for artists to go out and be fiercely independent and break. And I'm hoping one day a real artist does break on TikTok, not just a song, not just a moment, not just taking TikTok stars and having them put out music just for market share, quick fixes. But I really do hope that the dancing and the goofy faces stuff sort of transitions into 15 seconds of great, 30 seconds of great, one minute of like, oh my God, that was the greatest artist I've ever seen. You got to hope and pray that happens with TikTok because artists now are forced to be goofy. Do you know what I mean? Amazing artists I have like feel like they have to go on and be goofy and perform because goofy goes viral. Yeah, goofy sells right? for the but, people. Yeah, and it's like, and I'm just saying, I'm going to just be you and fight for your truth in art. On TikTok is TV right now, so I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it, but I, I, I do hope that we could be sitting here next year when we do this and we revisit, revisit this interview. That someone broke from TikTok that becomes a long-term superstar that plays arenas and stadiums. And that would be sort of my wish of not conforming to the platform's viralness, but just staying to your truth and staying on that journey and developing yourself over time to have an audience engage in yourself. All right, I got my last question. I was a huge newlyweds fan. What is Jessica Simpson like in real life? Because <laughs> I know you worked a lot with her over the years. Smarter than you could ever imagine. And her retention. I'm, I'm in her book multiple times. And I helped break her at Columbia. Then I went to Epic Records and I took her with me. And we spent a lot of time together. She was always my little sister, always will be. But she used TV into music, into fashion. You know, she had a three-step process where she knew she was going to be doing handbags and shoes and all that stuff, which made her a billionaire. She knew back then. She knew she wasn't the world's greatest singer. She knew she wasn't the world's greatest performer. But she knew there was a gateway, a roadmap, per se, a strategy to get to Walmart. And um, she did it. So I can only say that she's actually a brilliant businesswoman. And the show, the shtick, the stuff that you saw uh, was, 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 was very real, but behind it was a very, very, and is a very, very bright girl. If you read her book, it's her words. No one wrote that book. If you really read her book, that's, you can hear her speaking. You can hear her talking and telling her story. She didn't forget one thing in that book. Um, and, and, and that's why the book sold. It was the New York Times bestseller because it's her story and her truth. Um, and when you see success like that, you know, and her mom's incredible, her mom, Tina, you know, again, we talked about the moms, the mom effect in my career has been critical. These moms, think about these kids that come out differently. These artists, these stars, they come out, they're born stars, by the way. You don't go to star camp. 
You're born with that. I call it a star chip. Yeah. Doctors have the star chip to be a doctor, right? Accountants, lawyers, stars have a star chip to be singers, uh, TV stars, whatever it may be. Elon Musk has that brilliant chip to do what he does, right? Whether it's PayPal or Tesla, whatever else. So it's identifying that early. It's always the moms that know, and her mom stood behind her and helped her with that brand. So uh, only amazing, amazing, probably my favorite creator that I got to work with because she actually executed on multiple levels above and beyond music. She used music. I always used to say music sells everything but itself, and she did that. Listen, Charlie, you've been uh, you've been a great guest. It's uh, it's great to have you. Obviously, you're working on some really cool things right now with music mastery. You're still working with artists, uh, and you're kind of adapting with the times. Not even going the label route, kind of molding these guys independently. Uh, I'm excited to see what you do next because uh, obviously this is your your passion, but this is your talent is finding talent is, and molding talent. So uh, and make sure you guys follow Charlie Walk on Instagram. He's a fun follow. You see what he's doing. He's got this fun life. He's, you know, he's helping out with nightlife and helping out with artists and the Hamptons now. It, it's just exciting. It's cool. And uh, I'm appreciative of your time, Charlie. It's, it's really an honor. Well, you guys are doing great work. I love Hollywood Raw. You guys have really become a force of nature with not just incredible content and storytelling, but just consistent feeding. You're my, you're, you know. If there was ABC, NBC, Fox, there's now ABC, NBC, Fox, and Hollywood Raw. So I'm with you. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, great, with Charlie, man. Thank you again so much, man. I really appreciate, it, brother. Thank you. All right, guys. Uh, dude, what a guy, huh? That was a fascinating interview. Listen, it's not every day that we get someone so deep into the music industry that has the knowledge of these superstars and what it was like for a song to become a hit song. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's funny. Like I didn't know this like story about DNCE and how that song went on the radio four months before it actually took off. Like I just assume when I heard it, I was like, Oh, the song's big, you know, but maybe that I heard it in January when it was released in October and didn't pick up until after commercial. That to me is a really cool story. Yeah, no, it's uh it's cool because he was there, you know, he was the president of these labels during an interesting time when they were going from CDs and then also into the streaming. So he was there during this interesting transition. And really, when it comes down to it, he had to be, you know, he had to be kind of forward thinking. He had to think in the future. You know, he had always the industry kept changing and stuff. So it was it was just pretty wild. You know, he's uh, and then, dude, the people he's worked with, Post Malone, Shakira, the biggest Jessica stars, Simpson. not like not just. Oh, these are, you know, I've, I've worked with a couple of others, like the biggest stars in the world, Mariah Carey, he's worked, you know, like it's, it's really cool. I I'd love to hear more. I, I yeah. we need to get him like a podcast or something because yeah. I feel that he's got stories upon stories upon stories. Yeah. A hundred percent. Make sure you guys follow him at Charlie walk on Instagram. It's a great follow. Uh, you can find the video portion of this podcast. It's on YouTube. Uh, you know, we're also on TikTok, Facebook, uh, Twitter, we're on it all. Make sure, uh, you know, you make sure you follow Hollywood Raw Podcast on all social media platforms. You can find me at, at Adam Glenn, G-L-Y-N. You can find Dax Holt at D-A-X-H-O-L-T. Make sure you guys leave a message, leave a review, five-star only, leave a few nice words, or read the reviews on air. We'll see you guys next. Uh-huh. Media Production.